0: this particular video. One, I was thinking about you, Don, because I know you like a quartet, and I thought these guys were fabulous. And uh, it's probably one of the best groups I've ever s- seen sing this song. It uh, was pretty fabulous. Now I'm wondering, after you're watching them where they were singing, I wonder how many of them realize how close to heaven they were. <laughs> All they had to do is back up a little bit and away they go. So it was uh, quite an interesting area. Um, As you know, I was in the Philippines a few weeks ago and toward the tail end of my visit there, I went to Bali uh, in Indonesia and for the intent of trying to go diving there, it's one of the premier dive sites in the world, and I've been trying to get there for a couple of years, but because of volcanic eruptions over the last two years, um, I thought, yeah, I'd better not go there. But uh, this time it was, not acting up, and so I planned a trip out, and, um, but when I got there, there was some typhoon that had been up north, and, and it caused all kinds of wavy activity in the ocean, and it rained off and on, and it wasn't great for diving. I looked out in the ocean where it's typically all colors of blue, and it just looked like gray, and all stirred up, so it didn't look good, plus, Many of the dive shops there closed up shop because some of the boats got swamped because of the waves. And so they decided it was best not to go out. So I did something that I typically don't do is uh, I figured, okay, I'll do a land tour. And so usually when I go to these different places, uh, I dive. But this time I did a land tour. And it was a fascinating trip because I felt like the Apostle Paul. Uh, Michael, you got the slide up? Let me see if I got it here. Is it on, Mike? There. Okay, there we go. Okay. We'll get there. There we go. Um, when I was there, I felt like I was reliving Paul's journey to Greece when he went to Athens. Athens. And um, it was a very interesting place as I looked about and saw all these deities that were carved in the stone. They're everywhere. You go down the street. It seems like uh, you know, when you go down our street, you probably see every few miles you see a Starbucks, right? We used to say there's a bank on every corner, but now we say there's a Starbucks on every corner. And it seemed like in Bali there was a shop, and it was a big shop. It would probably, some of these shops, half the size of the land that our property sits on, was dedicated to selling statues. And they were all these statues of all these deities. I mean, there's so many deities there, it, it's mind-blowing. And so, I mean, the statues are beautiful, but they're worshipped as gods. And so I felt like Paul. And he says, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a commandment for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And that's exactly what I saw in Bali. Let's see, what is this? This is 2019. How many centuries have passed since Paul was in Greece and it's still going on? There was idols everywhere. They were all given over to idols. You can see very quickly that they worship God. Now, I was there for four days. And usually when I go to a remote area like that, I take notice of churches. You know, where are the churches? Where are the Christian churches? In most places, you know, you see quite a, quite a number of churches. You'll see a lot of Baptist churches every once in a while. Once in a while, you run across a, a church like ours. But they're far and few between. But when I got to Bali, I didn't see one. And I probably traveled two-thirds of the island and um, over, the, over three days, the only thing I saw was that I recall now is I saw a Mormon church and I saw a Catholic church, and that was it. Everything else was dedicated to Hinduism. And every once in a while, you'd come across a Buddha, you know, a Buddha building where they would worship Buddha. Um, And it got me thinking about, after watching what was going on there, the freedom that we have in Christ. And I wanted to kind of pick up from Noad's speech about the freedom that we have in Christ. You don't really understand the freedom that you have in Christ, I don't think, until you get there and see what I saw. It was was almost oppressive to see what people worship and what their focus is on. Um, and it's depressing when you think about it. And it was, it was good because I had a driver for three days, and, um, and he, w- he was a Hindu, and I was very curious about what he believed in. You know, trying to strike up a conversation, then kind of change it, you know, make that transition, if you will, into spiritual things. And then we would kind of weave back and forth, you know, talking about Hinduism, and then we'd talk about Christianity and try to make a comparison. And, uh, but my mind was, my mind was spinning. I mean, all the terminology that they use, all the the things that they believe, it was mind boggling. And I was thinking, wow, I'm sure glad I know the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm glad he saved me. And there's none of this confusion. So I wanted to just share with you some of the things that I learned to challenge you to when you meet people of a different faith like Hinduism. Now, how many in here have any Hindu friends? Matt? Neighbors, Neighbors? okay. Um, When you come across a Hindu, do you know how to share with them? Do you know what their belief is? And I have to admit that I thought I knew a little bit about Hinduism, but after I got there and I was immersed into it, I knew zero. It's so complicated that it took me two to three days after talking to this person what his beliefs were and tried to figure out what is he living for, what is he depending upon for eternal salvation. And, uh, but it took me three days and even after three days, I did further study on it because it is so complicated to understand his terms. Their terminology is so much different than ours. And then every every once in a while, they try to intertwine Hinduism beliefs into Christianity. So you have to kind of sort that out. So I thought I would just share with you this morning um, what Hinduism is all about, so that you can intelligently speak to your Hindu friends or neighbors or if you ever come across a Hindu, that you might have a better understanding of what they believe in. Because it is complicated. So we have freedom in Christ, and in Isaiah talks, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And in Psalms it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak eyes They have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. Notice, those who make them are like them. So everyone who trusts in them. So, it was kind of interesting, I went to different places there and uh, saw these idols. And so, this one area I went to is where they have these ballet long-tailed monkeys. And it's a reserve and there's thousands of them there. And it's like being in a rainforest, it's like you're watching Tarzan, you know. These huge trees. And all these vines growing down from these trees. And these monkeys are literally swinging about just like a And they're jumping across the trees like nothing. It's amazing to see. They're amazing animals. And um, so here's some of the idols. Uh, I mean, you look at them. They don't look like the most friendly things in the world. I mean, you wouldn't want to wake up in the middle of the night, look out your window and see something like this standing in front of you. It would freak you out. But they're really frightening when you look at them. But they're very ornate, very detailed. This is some of the water gardens, water palaces. Very beautiful gardens there. But it's interesting, you see what they worship. They worship creation. They worship about everything that's living. Plant life, animal life, human life, everything they worship. And they build these deities around what's created in, in this world. And you see them planted throughout this, this, this area. And you see the building in the background. It's interesting, when you go up to that building, there's these two large stone statues like this. And one is this really creepy looking thing, evil looking, scary looking, and that represents evil. And then you have this other one that looks pleasant and nice, friendly, that represents good. And they're the protectors of this building. They really think these things protect these buildings. So out of curiosity, and I was trying to be nice, I look around, make sure there wasn't too many around, but I just wanted to try something. Anybody there? (laughs) Nice day, isn't it? No response. Um, how's the weather? How do you see the weather? No response. Uh, could you come over here a little bit? You're blocking my way here. They didn't move. Yeah, there's stone. They're stone idol. They can't move. Right. Lord says they have ears. They cannot hear eyes. They cannot see. They have feet. They cannot walk. That's exactly what they are. They're made by man. And their images are made up by the imagination of the one who carved out the idol. And these things are everywhere. So I would think after seeing some of these idols there, I think some of these people who create these things are on, they're smoking marijuana or something. I mean, it looked like they must have tripped out when they created some of these images because they are the most creepy looking images I've ever seen. And then there's those that are very pleasant looking. But again, these are things that they do worship um, now, if you take notice I don't know if you can see it good enough here there's an example, this pig here, that's one of their idols that they worship. And then on the right-hand side, you see these altars. These altars are where they offer up sacrifices. And that's something you notice when you get to Bali right away, is you see these areas where they offer up sacrifices everywhere. There are doorsteps of houses. They're in businesses, they're everywhere. These small little, you know, temples or idols or altars that they set up. And you can see where they bring offerings to these different idols. Now, when you really get into it, color, like these umbrellas, there's a a representation of what those things mean. They're symbolic for what they believe in. Colors are symbolic in what they believe in. Here's one of the idols that they worship that looks a little more peaceful, not as uh, creepy. Um, And here's a place that was really interesting. Is that this is a place where they would go wash to cleanse themselves, to purify themselves. And we went into this temple. It was interesting. You couldn't wear shorts when you went in here. You had to wear a sarong. So all these guys that weren't, that's the first time I ever wore a dress. <laughs> I actually had to put a sarong on. Didn't even know how to do it, so my driver, he got, gave me this sarong. He said, here, put this on, and you're good. It's kind of weird now, ladies. I know what it's like to walk in a dress. It's really weird, <laughs> right? I almost tripped a couple times you know, with this sarong on. But you know, after I got it, I thought, hey, the sarong is pretty cool because all the guys in Bali, they wear sarongs. They wear you know a lower sarong. And they're really comfortable, you know, once you know how to put it on. I, mine was on so tight, I was kind of like this, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, was a, it was an experience. Uh, but this particular place of washing, I got looking at people and how many miles that they would travel just to get to this place because I know to get here was like a two-hour drive. But people will come here to get cleansed. It's a place of ceremonial washing, if you will. And then, if you notice, uh, right at the end, you see all this debris up here above the fountain. Those are all offerings that are made. All offerings that are made, and they're just they're just everywhere. Um, here's some more of these idols. There. I wish I could show you more. And then here's this is really interesting. These are these little temples that they set up. These are pretty large. These are Set up in, you know, the bigger uh, temple area. Outside the temple area, they'd have these altars set up. Very ornate, covered with gold, very beautiful. I mean, the craftsmanship is amazing. But then you see, uh, different times during the day, you'll see a holy man sitting in front of these, and then you'd see all these people you know, gather in front of this holy man and there's another guy playing some kind of musical instrument. You'd hear this, uh, oh, I forget, some kind of a chime. You know, they would go off and then they would pray and it was, it was different. And so, not only do you see these in the temples there, but you also see them in homes. You'll see, you'll go along the road and there's walls all, usually all around the compounds. But within the compound you'll see these altars, and there's many of them. And it's amazing how much time and expense they make to have these altars where they offer up these sacrifices. Now there's this joke in in Bali. I thought I'd give this to you because after I saw this and heard about it, I said, yep, for sure, the Balinese people live and work solely for ceremony. You see it every day. It's marked with offerings. Uh, my driver, when he showed up in the morning, he would apologize because he just got through praying. Well, you gotta remember now, they're not praying to a God, they're praying, they're meditating. And then they'd have these, right, they'd apply rice on their forehead, and then they'd have little flowers on their beautiful, you know, yellow, usually, usually yellow or orange, they'll put a yellow-orange flower here on their ear. But that's something he did every day. And I was curious about that, and he shared with me, but I couldn't follow up what he was saying. <laughs> what are you talking about? And um, so they did have ceremonies for everything: uh, birthdays, um, weddings, uh, birth, death, lots of ceremony going on. And as soon as you arrive in Bali, and I mentioned this earlier, you see These sacrifices, they're little things you see. You'll see them on the ground. You'll see them on countertops. You'll see them in altars. You just see them everywhere. You'll see them on the uh, dashboard of a car. And very colorful, and there's a lot of meaning to each of the items, by the way, that's being offered up. The other thing I found fascinating was they do this each day. where they pray and meditate. I'd say meditation, because they're not praying to a god. But each day, they're meditating at 6, 12, and 6 again. And I have to say, that's what I saw there, without exception. There was all this going on. You can count on it. These three hours of the day were dedicated toward meditation. And what they're doing is it's meditation to protect them and their their loved ones and uh, just committing themselves before these deities in the day. The other thing I found interesting, too, is that the uh, rice is grown with water that once flowed through a temple. Why do I say that? I wanted to put this out here because everything has to do with living life. There's some spiritual relevance to all these things that are grown, that are used. And here they use water from a temple. If for some reason it has some significance to the rice and um, they they use this rice specifically with water grown in the temples, part of their ritual. Here's uh, another picture of their offerings each day. I saw this every day where I went. Every morning when I got up early in the morning, you could see them doing that. If you get up at six o'clock, you'll see this, no matter where you are. And uh, this is kind of a good picture of, on the right here, the uh, altars that they build. These altars that I have here is is actually in the back, I don't know if it's a backyard or front yard of somebody's home, but they're just everywhere. So what's their religion about here? What happened here? Okay. So to kind of give you a layout of what they believe in, and it's kind of interesting in Bali, if you look in the middle part under manifestations, there's three deities that they worship, three main deities that they worship. Brahman, Vishnu, and Shiva. These are the three. But it's interesting in Bali, in order them to establish a religion, they have to have be a religion that has a, a, a one central God. There has to be a Godhead, a chief God, if you will. So what they did in Bali, they created this other God, the Wasa. That's their chief God. And they did that specifically to fulfill the law of Bali. Now, I don't know... It was, it was kind of interesting why they would do that, but they did it only to fulfill a law. It's not that it's real, but they've set it up that way. The other thing is under these three gods, deities, there's other manifestations. So there's many sub-levels of these deities that they worship, all kinds of stuff that they believe on these foreign gods. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. And then I would ask my driver, how do you know which one is right? <laughs> I mean, who do you follow? But everything in life, you know, be it water, food, the sky, creation, the ocean, the fish, the everything that is in it, there is a deity associated with these things, and they worship each one. And you see each one of these deities, they have a particular part that they're responsible for in creation. I wanted to point this out to you because when you start hearing what their belief is, if you understand the hierarchy that they believe in, it's a lot easier for you to understand what they're trusting in, what they believe in. And then when you compare it to Christianity, what do we know? There's but what, one God, right? There's three manifestations of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one God. It looks like there's three gods, but no, the Bible says there is one God. They're all co-equal with one another. So we worship one God, where they worship a multiplicity of gods. Here's some key concepts that you should know. And you've got to get this in your mind that you understand this, because if you don't understand these three concepts, you won't understand their belief and where they're coming from. You'll go... They'll start talking to you and you go, huh, what are you saying? What do you mean? I don't understand. You understand these three things, it starts making sense of what they believe in. So we see that reincarnation, in other words, reincarnation is you get reborn over and over and over again after death. You go through this cycle after death over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. First thing you have to ask yourself, when does it stop? Well, there's a stopping point in Hinduism. That's when you achieve enlightenment. That's when you begin to recognize nothing about yourself. Okay, You don't recognize anything about yourself. But you establish this, this particular level. And I kept asking my driver, when do you know that is? When is that going to happen? And they couldn't answer it. See, all they would say, well, we hope. You know, we hope that my karma, and then they throw this word karma in, that my karma is good enough to take me to the next level. All right, so the next one, key concept is karma. And karma is your attitude in life will have consequences, either for good or for bad. All right? And um, depending on... What you did for good will determine where you are at the next level, or if it's bad karma, it will determine what sublevel you might be reincarnated into. So when I had asked them, I said, "Okay, um, so you believe?" And I couldn't. I, I just wanted to throw this out when I was at this monkey refuge. I said. So what you're saying to me is that you believe that maybe some of these monkeys here can be a relative of yours? He said, Yeah, it could be. Could be. And it's because they had bad karma. And I said, Really? So how do you know that you're doing the right things to achieve this right relationship with whoever you believe in? So Just think of karma. When you look at these two, these are really non-negotiables with the Hindu. Non-negotiables. These are two major beliefs that they have. And then there's this what is called dharma. And you'll hear this from them too when he talked to me about this one, I was getting further confused. But um, it's a moral order of the world. There's this constant balance between good and evil. And when I understood that, I could start to see now what are these things they worship and why they worship them, because there's battle going on between good and evil. God's demons, the world of gods, and the world of humans. And uh, a person's dharma is the act of maintaining this balance. There's this whole balance. You'll hear that word a lot, balance, balance of life. and um so i'm gonna skip this because we're running out of shorter time so what i wanted to do is i wanted to play um, an audio that i got off of ravi zacharias anybody here of ravi zacharias okay uh ravi is pretty good in this because of course he was born in england or in india and um i w- was listening to some Uh, audios from Ravi on Hinduism and it really helped explain Hinduism at a basic level that I think would help all of us. It sure helped me understand it a lot better. So I want to play an excerpt here, it's about 34 minutes long and um, when we finish up I got a couple closing comments and then uh, so take notes if not you can also um, order the the series from Ravi Zacharias and uh, I think it's very helpful so we'll start up
1: Now what I would like to do is give you what are the essential beliefs of Hinduism without necessarily going into all of their philosophical writings and so on. If you can get a handle on these ideas, you'll begin to see where they're coming from And then when I close, I would like to demonstrate for you where it is today and why it is it has such an attraction for the westerner. I have not seen this kind of material really put together solidly in writing, and I myself am presenting it for the first time to you as we tie it all together. So please bear with me as I unfold it. There are several motifs in Hinduism. The first one is this, all of life is unity. All of life is unity. Every form of life is united to other forms of life. This is where the ideas of vegetarianism and nonviolence, etc., come in. So that there is a a connection between all forms of life and the average Hindu you talk to, this is non-negotiable for him. Every living thing has that in common with the divine and the distinguishing from a living to a non-living thing is only a difference in degree not in kind it's only a difference in degree not in kind in fact When the founder of Jainism, that's the religion in India where you'll see the Jains wearing even masks on their mouth and nose so that they do not ingest or inhale any insects, which is part of life. They don't want to create that hiatus in unity. Mahavira, who founded Jainism, would not even cook vegetables in his home. And the reason he didn't is because even vegetables were a form of life. So you say, how did he sustain himself? Well, everybody who believes such extremes of philosophies have to find back doors of escape. And so what he would do is he would go begging and if you in your home had any vegetables left over from what you'd cooked for yourself, then he would take it so that this way you had not annihilated life for his sake. It was already there and dead. You find all kinds of tremendous maneuverings that will go on. Even my professor at Cambridge when I'd suddenly sometimes throw a question his way after he'd made a dogmatic statement on Hinduism of some sort, he'd sort of with a curl in his lip and a twinkle in his eye say, you know the answer to that. He says we have our ways we have our ways of saying something dogmatically and accommodating it under the table in some other way. So all life is unity, that is number one. Number two, every birth is a rebirth. Every birth is a rebirth. In other words, the doctrine of reincarnation is absolutely non-negotiable to a Hindu. There are many doctrines a Hindu will be willing to trade away with you in some liberal form. The doctrine he will never negotiate with, this is one of them, there are two that I have never met a Hindu trade off. One is the doctrine of reincarnation. In fact, I was speaking at one of India's leading universities in the city of Agra, that's the city of the Taj Mahal, and there were about 400 people there, and I think only about 10 or 12 Christians and my wife was in the audience and I was going to be giving a presentation and the vice chancellor of the university who was a Hindu was going to challenge me after that he was sitting on my right hand this had never been done in that setting as far as anyone could remember this took place about three years ago and I remember when I was sitting at that table about to begin my presentation I lifted my glass of water to take a drink and my hand was trembling with such fear and nervousness I couldn't get that cup up to my mouth I was petrified. There were Muslim scholars in the front row, six scholars in the second, and the rest of them were all Hindu scholars. And at the end of it, in a rather shocking euphemism, my wife says to me, uh, you looked a little nervous to me there this afternoon. <laughs> and as soon as I finished my address, As soon as I finished my address, a Hindu scholar stood up and his first question was, what is your opinion on reincarnation? And number three, which is karma. No Hindu will negotiate these two. If you want to know two veins that flow, it is the doctrine of reincarnation and the doctrine of karma. And his opening question was, what is your opinion on reincarnation and karma? Because he immediately knew by my answer to that question, he was basically asking me, do you want to be lynched or hanged or shot, you know? Immediately my answer to that would separate me from that audience, because both the Buddhists and the Hindus I have a rebirth dogma and a karmic dogma. The Muslims, of course, would have been separated at that point, but the Hindus and Buddhists would immediately identify with that. So number one, all life is unity. Number two, every birth is a rebirth. And this doctrine of reincarnation, in fact, is getting very, very popular, even in the western part of the world. And by the way, just in case you and I take these things lightly, some of the finest minds in America's scientific world, and I'll explain to you why, lean towards pantheism. Possibly even Einstein was a pantheist. Fritzhof Capra, isn't he at Berkeley, who wrote the book The Tao of Physics? Pantheist. And there is some belief that even possibly Stephen Hawking in Cambridge today would lean more towards pantheism. So what I'm saying to you is not some kind of nonsense that you and I think we're spending our time on. Some of the finest minds will build themselves on some of these philosophical issues that I'm talking to you about. So all life is unity. Every birth is a rebirth. And the doctrine of karma is a non-negotiable for them. Number four. The human condition is misery and opportunity. The human condition is misery and opportunity. One of my favorite Hindi songs sung in a Mother India film, this is the way it went. "Duniya mein hain to hi padega, agar hi padega, which literally means, since I have come into this world, I have to live. If living means drinking poison, i got to drink it. So it is that wheel of rebirth. Sometimes you'll crest, sometimes you'll be smothered by it. If you want to read a classic book on Indian fatalism, read the book City of Joy. Some of you may have seen that. It is written, I think, by Collins, the man who co-authored along with LaPierre and Collins, O Jerusalem, Is Paris Burning, Freedom at Midnight, that great trilogy, one on India, one on France, one on Israel, and this one, City of Joy he will make a case for you that even people living in the wildest slums and the filthiest slums of Calcutta have that sense of joy delivered from this misery seeing life as an opportunity that's Hindu philosophy they see that that inescapable condition as it were number five the goal of all of this is what they will call Atman I'll explain that term Siddhi, which literally means please hear me now when a Hindu philosopher uses the word Atman he means yourself your essential self and this is what he will say that which is essentially you needs to be liberated into total peace and that is the goal of life you've heard this illustration haven't you when the sage looks at the student and says when the student says to him who am I and the sage says to him what do you see there and he says I see a tree And then he says to the student, what do you see on the tree? He says, I see branches. What else do you see? I see fruit. Bring me that fruit. Break the fruit open. What do you see in there? I see some pulp and I see some seeds. Take out the seed. What do you see when you smash the seed? And he smashes the seed and opens it and he says, I see nothing. And the famous line that he gave the student was, tat tvam asi. Thou art that. The essential you, is that intangible just like out of this invisible essence of a seed comes this gigantic oak tree so there's an invisible essence in you that makes you into this cosmic scene of one reality marvelous illustrations just flow out of there and you can sit and nod your head there for hours and at the end of it walk out and say did i really learn anything But the philosophizing goes on. Atman Siddhi, number five. Number six, there are techniques provided for them. And you are familiar with them. The one that is most popular in the West is the technique of yoga. And there are basically three ways you can find this Atman Siddhi. You will find three types of Hindus. One who is pursuing Atman Siddhi by way of philosophy. One who is pursuing Atman Siddhi by way of devotion and ritual purification before the gods. Sundar's family, if you go to their home this very day, you will see a whole slew of idols in their home. Even when they came to visit him in Toronto and live with him, he went through a personal struggle with this when his mother insisted that she wanted to put up some of her own Hindu gods in the private room in which they were, following the way of devotion. They call it bhakti marga, the way of devotion. And the third is karma yoga, which is a discipline of life that you bring to do your best and not worry about the consequences. But you just are doing the good deeds that you can do. Every Hindu basically falls into one of these three categories. Please listen now. That's why some of them can be theists following devotion. Listen now. Some of them can be atheists or non-theists following knowledge. You can take the Hindu scriptures and prove almost anything you want to prove from them. It is a mixture. It moves from polytheism, many gods, to monism, where you're part of a non-personal absolute reality, all the way down to a kind of a theism where one god is selected whom you give your personal devotion to. But these are the three ways in which the techniques are provided, all right? That is six there. Number seven, this becomes clear to us as as Christians move along, every person is free to choose his own every person is free to choose his own so if you go to an orthodox Hindu and say wait a minute, I'm a Christian how does this measure out with you? nine times out of ten he will say since that's the way you were born it is your destiny in this life to live it out this way but you can be sure this is not the last time around for you Because this is not the ultimate expression of moksha or release. So as somebody like... uh Shankara or a Radha Krishnan would say look even though you are a devoted Christian keep following that way to the best But this is not the final stage when you come to our stage You will no longer be following a personal God you will know that you are identical with the divine part of the Brahman the impersonal Absolute now, please listen because in that philosophy of life you are part of the divine notice now there is no I You distinction that's why the pure monasticity Hindu will not pray, because praying assumes a you. When I pray, I'm talking to somebody, I, you. They only have a capital I, they meditate. That's where the meditation comes in. The more you look inside, the more you will find out that you are identical with the divine. And of course, when you come to the last part, it will tell you anything faithfully followed will lead you to the ultimate realization. Anything faithfully followed. Let me give you a couple of illustrations that may sound silly for you, but they will be found even at the highest levels, even of the Hindu scriptures, I can assure you. I remember when I had first become a Christian, we were doing some Bible studies, and I noticed a cute little story, and the story went something like this. It was basically a man in a household who had many gods. And one of them was a huge, angry-looking idol. Another was a small, happy-looking idol. You know, one was an angry, big idol. One was a small, happy-looking idol. And the young boy said to his father one day, why do you bow down before these things of stone? They have no life in them. And the father said, don't you ever dare say that again. These things are real. They have reality. Don't just call them things of stone. So the father went out one day and the young fellow decided he was going to try something. He took a huge staff in his hand and smashed that little god to smithereens. Just broke the little happy idol to bits. And then he took that pole and put it into the hands of the big idol sitting there. And as he sat there with that pole in his hand as it were, the story goes that the father comes back and says, who did that? And the little guy says, I don't know, I didn't do it. He said, what do you mean you didn't do it? He says, I'm telling you I didn't do it. Look at the big god and as a matter of fact, he's got the pole in his hands. He must have done it, he looks angry too. And the father says, don't be silly. And the conversation goes on until finally he says, look, tell me who did it. He says, I'm telling you it looks like the bigger god did it and the father finally says it can't, it can't because it's only a thing of stone it has no life in it I can give you conversations in their writings of their sage, Shankara, the great philosopher, discussing with princes his philosophy and then coming up with curious little stories like this and telling Shankara, wait a minute, if you tell me I'm not real, in fact, one of the stories in the scriptures shows how the prince didn't like the fact that Shankara was telling him that he was not real and therefore even his earthly kingdom was not real, all of that was an illusion and the next time Shankara came for his meeting, the prince brought a huge wild elephant with him and set him in front of Shankara and it chased Shankara who ran up a tree and so the prince went to him and said if this wild elephant is not real how come you ran from it and he says that which you think was me was the one you thought who ran up the tree it was not actually me who ran up that tree <laughs> now you, you go on and on and on so it moves from extremes and before we get through you'll see that to some of the most brilliant philosophizing you will ever hear about some of the most brilliant philosophizing you will ever read, you will find in there, to some of the most incredible stories and illustrations. And the reason is this, the arms were wide open to incorporate everything. And Dr. Radhakrishnan, who became India's president, was a follower of Shankara, once upon a time professor of Eastern philosophies at Oxford, Radhakrishnan once said, the problem with Hinduism is it has opened its arms so wide that when it finally closes them, it will end up strangling itself believing too much now you can look at that aspect and get into all kinds of detail but let me give you something that will bring it into modern day terms so that you can truly understand what exactly is the reason that I think the westerner has fallen so much for this you see in 1835 a baby was born that ultimately was going to change the course of modern-day Hinduism he ended up giving himself the name Ramakrishna born in 1835 and at the age of 16 he went into the temple life committing himself to the temple and Ramakrishna the Ramakrishna mission today is one of the most influential factors in Indian philosophy now Ramakrishna had many opponents and one of them was a young man this is very fascinating you know you look at Islam you will find one of the staunchest opponents of Muhammad getting converted and Islam taking off you go into uh, Hinduism you'll get one of the staunchest opponents of the founder getting converted and then Hinduism takes off the same thing happened with Buddhism almost all of them the same thing but there was one man who was constantly debating Ramakrishna and after one particular debate which he lost he walked away convinced that he was sitting in front of a sage in fact Ramakrishna at one point touched this man so that the Lord says he fell over in a trance and in that trance he saw a vision that all of the world was in a sense converging into the center or emanating from the center everything was one all of life was unity this man became known to the world as Swami Vivekananda and Vivekananda became the man who brought Hinduism to America Vivekananda became the man who brought Hinduism to America and what happened when Vivekananda came here in 1893 is what I'm going to leave with you as the turning point nearly a hundred years ago of how Hinduism became accepted in the western part of the world and why America gave it the kind of allegiance that it did now this is very fascinating material to get into but I want your careful attention when he came to Chicago Vivekananda was as a non-entity all of the big speakers were talking there then all of a sudden Vivekananda uninvited went up to the platform and in his opening remarks he said this and I want you to listen to what he said please notice the sensitivity of what he said and I think it's fascinating why he said it we who come from the East have sat here on the platform today and have sat here day after day And have been told in a patronizing way that we ought to accept Christianity because Christian nations are the most prosperous we look about us and see England the most prosperous Christian nation in the world with her foot on the neck of 250 million Asiatics we look back into history and see that the prosperity of Christian Europe began with Spain Spain's prosperity began with the invasion of Mexico Christianity wins its prosperity by cutting the throats of its fellow men at such a price the Hindu will not have and does not want prosperity I have sat here today and I have heard the height of intolerance from you all I have heard the creeds of the Muslims applauded when today the Muslim sword is carrying destruction into India blood and sword are not for the Hindus whose religion is based on the laws of love when he finished they broke out into a thunderous sustained applause and Hinduism dawned in America I It's very significant for you to understand it. How did he touch the nerve? Notice, he did not go into philosophizing. As a matter of fact, if you read Vivekananda and read Ramakrishna, you will find that Ramakrishna in his pantheon of gods included Jesus. He included even Mary. He even included Buddha. He even included Muhammad. His was a cosmic vacuum cleaner type thing, you know, bring them all into this one one system. But none of that is what he used here. What did he use? He touched a raw nerve. And for 100 years now since that speech, and for decades before that, please understand what I'm saying here, he introduced a point of prejudice which has made the propagation of Christianity very difficult in most parts of the globe today. You can talk to almost any Jew today, any Muslim, any Hindu, and he will trace you back to the atrocities that were committed in the name of Christ for centuries. That is the umbrella under which you and I have to live and that is the tragedy and you know folks even as we're living today in such a difficult situation to face in the Middle East right now which has virtually insoluble problems and I can tell you categorically here, the reason is got ultimately got nothing to do with the issue in Israel right now if that issue is settled there will still be wars there Iran and Iraq fought for eight years killing over a million people it had nothing to do with with the West Bank but I'm saying to you that What is going to happen now is going to linger for centuries because in the Middle Eastern and the Eastern world, history never dies. It always lives. Mahatma Gandhi was asked what he thought of Christianity. He said, I like their Christ, I don't like their Christian because when I think of the Christian, he said, I think of the Christian with a mug of beer in one hand and a chunk of beef in the other hand. What did he say here? Yes, they've got their foot on 250 million Asiatics. And so with that gunboat philosophy, as the missionaries came in, unfortunately became identified with it. So today when you talk to an Orthodox Hindu and try to minister to him for Christ, remember this statement that I read to you. Because it brings with it an unfair perception. But that is the perception any prejudice will distort your perception and any stigma can lick a good dogma if you're stigmatized in some way you've got to rework that you've got to rework that you've got to rework that let me tell you what I mean by this in August of last year I was speaking to about 1200 people in an auditorium one of my colleagues was there with me most of them were Hindus At the end, there were 153 who made first-time commitments to Christ that night, most of them high-placed executives. There was a Hindu executive in the first or second row. He went over to my colleague in India, who is our fellow evangelist there, and he went over to him afterwards and said to him, if anybody here was not touched tonight, I want to see that man. That's the degree to which the Lord had spoken to him that night. But then he went over to his subordinate, who had invited him to the meetings and he said to his subordinate the only reason I came here tonight is because that man is Indian. That shocked me. But there is a large group of people with whom that prejudice still exists. Now ladies and gentlemen the only application I can make for you is this. Therefore if you're trying to reach a Hindu for Christ it's a long road. And one of the roads that you'll have to cross is his confidence that you love him or her for who they are, not for something that you're trying to manipulate them into. So the first handy you need to get is when Vivekananda Katar came here, he touched a colonial and a racial nerve. And you see, this is very fascinating. I hate to get sidetracked, but I do a lot of lecturing on ethics. The only thing that is illegitimate in America now is prejudice. Virtually anything else you can do. But if you can brand something as prejudice, then it is automatically considered wrong. I read a marvelous essay by the professor of uh, literature from uh, University of Chicago, Richard Weaver, writing 45 years ago his book really provides the backdrop for Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind and Richard Weaver I think died in the 50s having written in the 40s. He wrote a brilliant essay called In Defense of Prejudice because there are some things you have to be prejudiced about because they're right! But what has happened now is they have taken issues of race and culture and and all of that and now applied it to creed. And what it really means is if you believe something to be exclusively true, you're considered prejudiced. You with me? So that the moment I say on a university campus that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, I'm immediately discounted as somebody who is too prejudiced in this matter and the word becomes a kind of an umbrella and a catch-all so that prejudice is used now from race where it was legitimately used because prejudice is wrong there now it is used to morality so that if you're living an immoral life and I say I don't agree with your morality I'm considered prejudiced but you see feel the nerve and I would like to try and bring this all to a conclusion by giving you some principles in which you and I as Christians need to respond to it and then leave it open for some questions. Number one, when you're dealing with a Hindu always go slowly. Go slowly. Please do not try to move fast. It never comes that quickly. Number two, show respect for what he or she believes without compromise. One of the missionary candidates who applied in an organization I shall leave unnamed, but I got involved in trying to see if we could get a government officer to help him change his visa. This young man, although a Canadian or an American by, by race, was born in India and knew some of the Indian languages better than I do, and he loved the country and wanted to go back, applied for a missionary visa, and they asked him purpose a coming, and he put down there to teach people about God. he will never, ever get a visa. They turned him down on a blacklist. Father applied. We were going to contact. My father was alive at that time. He was gonna try and contact because my dad was very highly placed in the government and in fact was in charge of the visa department, would probably have been able to try to do something. Shortly before he left, my dad passed away. But when he found out what had been said, he said, they will never change that line. He said, you don't tell a people of that respect for their own heritage that you're coming there to teach them about God when the whole nation is seeped in religion. So there has to be a definite sense of showing respect and without compromising. Number three, do not assume. Do not assume that just because you are not identical in the culture therefore you cannot reach the person it's just tougher but it shows a process of love and it can be done it takes the patience but it must be done Fourth, always listen to their felt problems it is one thing to talk it is another thing to listen and each person feels it differently number five the young people are widest open are the most widely open to it number six focus on the person of Christ and personal relationship. And I could go into doctrines that give them trouble, such as the doctrine of sin, such as the problem with denominationalism, such as the problem with exclusivity and so on. But the last thing I want to say to you is, please allow for the supernatural because I'm convinced in most religions like Islam and Hinduism, Hinduism is seeped in idolatry Islam has a doctrine of angels and an awful lot of satanic influence in their religion so that when you see even a Muslim convert for years to come, you'll see all kinds of struggle with what they've got in terms of oppression, possession, and so on. Allow for the intervention of the supernatural in many of these. And lastly, I say, be careful after the point of commitment to try to deluge them with too much too soon. If you look at 2 Kings 5, when Naaman believed in Yahweh and he looked, Naaman the Syrian, and he looked at Elisha and he said, I want to ask you a question. When I go back and my master asks me, when he leans on me, to bow down before his own god of Ramon, even though I will not be bowing down because he leans on me, my body half bends involuntarily. Is it all right for me to be there in the temple of Ramon while my master is leaning on me? Elisha doesn't even answer the question directly. He just says to him, you go on, go in peace. And I think it is because Elisha felt Naaman would come to his own conviction and his own answer in the right time. You couldn't prescribe it with a sense of immediacy and send him on. let me give you one beautiful illustration and then tell you why all of this has appealed to the westerner and then close here. My uncle is a Hindu and I think this is an interesting story for you to hear. In his car all kinds of idols on the dashboard. I have known him for about 10 years. Every time he came to listen to me preach, He would put his arm around me, almost like saying, I'm very proud of you, but don't ever expect me to do what you've done. Sundar was telling me before we came here for the evening, he said, I hope we'll tell them some of the stories of the responses we've had. I could preach my heart out for one hour, and he can, on the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. And he was telling me this afternoon how his uncle who's a uh, Hindu came and put his arm around him and said your grandfather would have been proud of you if he had been alive. Imagine he preached a whole sermon on righteousness by faith or something like that and this orthodox Hindu man comes and puts his arm around him, It just goes over. And I've heard people come and put their arm, my relatives come and put their arms around me saying, I'm so proud of you. So wait a minute, did you did, I poured my heart out? I just about bled in my throat trying to tell you what this message is about in Christ. But the suctioning goes on. It adds, 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 never subtracts. So this uncle of mine would come for every meeting. His daughter made a commitment and they were very upset with her. They didn't want her to have any more contact with us afterwards. Last year in July I was there and we were preaching and on Sunday morning after I finished preaching I said to my wife something has happened to Uncle Eddie I said he looks at me differently he talks to me differently and after I finished the message in the church to which he came he took me to a friend of his in his wheelchair and said son will you pray for this friend of mine I thought to myself what does he want me to pray for a friend of his about where is he coming from the next day he said I'd like to have breakfast with you so he and my aunt came Sundar we were all at the table and Sundar being from an immediate Tinder background my ancestors were there my one of my great-grandfather's were, was a great-great-grandfather was a Hindu priest and so we were also from the priestly line but this man was from uh, uh, the Hindu background and Sundar was at the table and we were eating and he said can you excuse us for a moment and he told us he'd want to talk to him went and sat down for about one or maximum two minutes And they came back. I thought to myself, wonder what happened in two minutes. (laughs) So Sundar tells us afterwards, you know what he said to me? He sat down and said to me, I wanted to become a Christian some time ago, but I went to see a priest, a a Catholic priest there, and the priest said to me, no, no, please don't become one. You are intended to remain in the religion in which you are born. You are intended to remain in the state in which you were born. So he says to Sundar, what do you think of that? The Lord gave Sundar wisdom. Sundar had just one question for him. He said, would you have felt the same way if you were poor? And he says to him, thank you. That answers my question. You can tell Prakash, who's our evangelist there, that I have become a Christian. I now want to get baptized. When I was there again, shortly thereafter, he dropped me off at the airport. And he and my aunt put their arms around me. And my aunt said to me, son, how can I ever thank you for what you did for uncle? I said, auntie, did you hear what he said when he was getting baptized? He told the pastor before he got baptized, for all these years I kept saying, no man will ever convince me of Christianity. Let us take him at his word. No man did, I said, auntie, the spirit of God did. It happens. It happens in the strangest way of intervention.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And it enlightened you a little bit about uh, meeting with your Hindu friends and neighbors. And um, nothing is impossible, like you said, through the Spirit of God. You can have opportunity. And again, one of the things that really impacted me through that, again, is the freedom that we have in Christ. And just as a matter of uh, the freedom as it spoke about in the Word, it says in John eight thirty six. therefore, if the Son of God makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And I'll just leave it there. You shall be free indeed. Isn't that great? Freed. And just think of the lies of uh, the Hindus, the bondage that they're in right now. It's it's slavery and they're bound to it. And it's a terrible thing to see every day with no hope, none, no hope at all. They're just gonna continue in this cycle each day and hope and hope and hope. But um, that really spoke to me about the freedom that we have in Christ. And then last in Galatians five one. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Isn't that good? We're free in Christ. We have peace indeed. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for who you are and that you've set us free. We know the minute that we've believed in you, Lord, you brought us into your family You set us free from the penalty of our sin. You set us free from the bondage and chains of sin that bound us day by day, Lord. And you set us free. No longer prisoners, but we've become your children, free indeed. And Lord, we again thank you for dying for us. We thank you for going to Calvary. And we know it wasn't any deed in ourselves, Lord, that made us right with you, but it was all your work all your work at Calvary, where you laid yourself down for us so that we might be set free and be with you for eternity. And that we do give you thanks in Jesus' name. Okay, thank you everyone. I think it, I'm sorry I went over a little bit, but uh, hopefully this was good information for you and that you understand you know, what Hinduism is all about. And again, I cautioned just as Ravi did, go slow with your Hindu friends. It's just like this man that was with me for three days, as I asked more and more about his life, then he started sharing me a lot more about his culture. Matter of fact, so much he took me to some cremation ceremonies, which I was totally blown away. But it was interesting because I showed care for him. They welcomed me with open arms and said, come on in. Matter of fact, they all wanted pictures you know, with me, it was interesting to see how friendly they were. And uh, so just show your love for Christ and let the Spirit of God work in their hearts and be ready to share or give a good word in due season.